Greetings, friends. Welcome back. This is Jill, and it's K9360, and we're more than halfway through July. Oh, my goodness. It goes so fast. When I was a kid, summer lasted forever. Hmm. Yeesh. Okay, last week we talked a little bit about uh, business as usual, and by that we were thinking of... uh, the dog business pet industry, uh, dogs as commodities, and a business model uh, that lets us tell whether or not we are shopping sustainably, right? Because overproduction, retail rescue is unsustainable over the long term. So today let's talk a little bit about uh, what to do how to approach and how to think about um, the material entity of the dog once it has arrived in our home. So you may have heard the expression, uh, let a dog be a dog. And I think there's some truth to that, right? It's not like they want to be birds or horses. They're dogs and they can't be anything but dogs. It's sometimes dog behavior that people refer to when they say, oh, just he's just being a dog as if they would prefer their dogs get in the trash or refuse to be housebroken or bite the mail carrier, chase the neighbor kid on a skateboard. I don't know that that's what they prefer, but I think there's a line between accepting the dog's dogness uh, and expecting the dog to be able to function in a human world without a lot of additional effort to contain or control their behavior. Right, Doing things on a leash or because a human makes them do it doesn't make our dogs less than. It makes them better prepared for the invasion of silly people and they're out there and bad manners. So my dogs are dogs. They get to do dog things and they often get to do things that precious few other dogs get to do, like travel, go into places of business, meet new people and get to do dog things with other dogs in magical places like obedience trials and other dog events and sports. Daycare invites dogs to be crazy dogs. Dog parks invite dogs to be dangerous dogs. So I'll tell you here that I prefer my version of dogs being dogs, and that includes polite, mannerly, indifferent to uncouth people who don't know how to act around dogs, or other dogs that haven't had the benefit of learning, of training to learn how to adapt to any environment they might find themselves being dogs in, right? But how do we get there? Because that's where you have to start with your new rescue dog, the mannerly part. You have to start with training, not daycare, not dog parks. Here's why. If the dog has had negative encounters with people or even with other dogs over what it considers to be a resource, space, stuff, you can be assured it will use aggression as a tactic if it feels threatened, especially in a brand new home. There is no such thing as without provocation. No dog bites out of the blue sky. Your new dog bites because he believes he's in jeopardy or something he values is at stake, whether he possesses it or is trying to. In the human world, this is probably how wars are started. 
right? Don't give the dog a reason to bite you. From the day you bring him home, control the resources and control access to resources. Teach your new dog that you are a fair and predictable provider of those resources. Because every successful behavior modification program starts with executing appropriate confinement. Don't give your new dog the full run of your house. And this prevents accesses to resources and the ability to restrain the dog in the presence of resources. If the dog is permitted unlimited access to everything, he is never emotionally or mentally prepared to learn that defense is not necessary and there's no threat to his safety. By restricting his access and restraining the dog passively when these things are present, the dog learns to adapt to their proximity even though they're just temptingly out of reach. As in, that's my cat, right? This isn't to say isn't to say that the dog won't try to access these things, but we can create an environment where the dog is less likely to become defensive in the presence of trig- triggering stuff, places, people, right? And the dog begins to establish a foundation of trust and more importantly, or just as importantly, acceptance of fair, clear, calm, human, human restraint. Right? Human leadership. Active restraint and passive confinement restrict dogs from their freedom to make And a basic foundation in obedience can only help to diminish the dog's desire to try to access resources or defend them. Sometimes people like to get fancy when they contemplate training their dog. They think the dog is capable of learning entire vocabularies because Lassie was a real live dog like Pinocchio was a real life boy. Dogs need four basic skills, generally, to be successfully integrated into a human. To be able to move with you. They need to be able to move away from you. They need to be able to move toward you. And they need to be able to stop moving. What do those look like? What do we call those skills? Heal or walk with me? A hear command. Come with me, right? Come to me. A retreat command, get out of my way, or even go to your kennel, or go to your bed. And a stay command, which I think we all know about and have probably used. And we train these skills to a high degree of reliability, beginning with the understanding that these things cannot occur without strategy and effort. Supplemental to the goal of teaching our dogs that defensive behavior is neither acceptable nor necessary. We have to begin with a standard plan of generalized obedience. Conflict-free a means of communication as we can create, but first we have to be on the same page. Because obedience is nothing more than teaching your dog a common language. One that both of you understand. Not you talking to an uncomprehending dog. And as we go through that process, much of the dog's lack of trust will slip away, and so should most of the defensiveness strategies that the dog new to your household may have previously employed. So once you get your dog proficient with four basic directions, exercises, right, we can use those things. We can implement or apply them in our daily lives to restructure the dog's behavior in the presence of the conditions that trigger defensive behavior around resources. People think of 
maybe or in terms of resources being segregated into different things like food or food bowls or toys or places to sleep or proximity to owners. But it, it, it's kind of the same behavior manifested over different things. Dogs will guard, claim, space. Dogs will guard, claim, objects. Some dogs will guard or claim access to their own bodies. Some dogs are only guardy about one thing. Others generalize over all of it. But after we've established elements of control over the dog using basic tenets of obedience to control their movement and direction, we can start expecting cooperation in the presence of those objects, those places, or those people that the dog may have once tried to defend. Using the leash and what we've learned about controlling access, we can create an opportunity for the dog to interact safely with the desired object or place or person by redirecting his focus. And that requires the application of the trained commands. Right? Why teach the commands if we're not going to use them? And there's so many opportunities to use them in the course of a day. If a dog is healing... He cannot get access to things, nor would he be compelled to defend them. If I direct him away from something he covets and onto a dog bed or into a crate, I have successfully removed his compulsion to acquire or defend. If I call him to me, for which he must pass by or through those things, I have replaced their importance in his mind. If I park him next to any of those things and tell him to stay and ignore them completely, then I am, I've also established control over his desire for these items, whatever they might be. All of this serves to not only diminish the value of these things in the dog's mind, but it creates an environment where the dog is at ease in their close proximity. When the dog learns that access is granted only through permission and that it can be revoked at any time. It sounds rosy and simple, but modifying the behavior of a dog that's new to you, a dog who brought behavioral baggage, if you will, including things like resource guarding, it's difficult, and sometimes it can be dangerous. What owners fail to grasp is that its resolution isn't measured in days, weeks, or months, but a lifetime of deliberate practice since aggression, once it's used, remains a behavioral tactic in a dog's arsenal of responses. There's no permanent cure for what folks commonly misinterpret as aggression. We can carefully articulate the controls of triggers and implement behavioral safeguards that we can practice regularly until those neural pathways are rewritten. But our persistent application of rigorous management and precise obedience is what determines our success. Here's another way to think about it with reference to a little recent research we saw a couple months ago. Things can be true and they can also be a lie, right? Um, for example, you are mostly banana and mostly a non-human life form, which might be true because we share 60% of our DNA with a banana and because our body has more microbe cells than it has purely human ones. 
Does that make us a banana or a fruit fly? It does not. And so we have the latest bit of nonsense spun by press release science that breed and behavior have only a tenuous relationship to each other. It's nonsense. If we start with the study and what it says, quote, researchers from the United States reported that only 9% of behavioral variations are linked with the canine breed. This is based on a data sample of 18,385 pet dogs where almost 50% were purebred. And the paper was published in the journal Science, no less, on Friday, April 29th, just this last April. Right. Right? What was the common denominator again? 9% of what? You would think the study would list, would list that clearly, but you would be wrong. Not only does the study say all dog breeds are the same or that they track the same as mutts, but what does the study say? Quite a lot less than it would like to, and none of it is new. What it basically says is what Cesar Milan and a few other folks and trainers have been saying for years. It's an animal first. That dog. It's a dog second. It's a breed third. And then it's the individual. When we relate to our dogs, we're especially trying to correct an unwanted behavior in the home. It's important to think of them first as animal, then as science. Then as breed. Sorry, first as animal, then as species. So it's an animal, it's a dog, it's a breed, like a beagle or husky. And then last and least important is a name. To have a happy, balanced dog is to respect those qualities about them, not to turn them into fur babies. So this study is knocking down a straw man. Has anyone ever said that all dogs within a breed are the same? Not anyone reputable that I can find or that I know of, but by the same token, if you think the general personality and code of a Jack Russell Terrier is the same as a Greyhound or a Beagle, you may not have spent enough time around, <laughs> around these particular breeds, right? But wait, there's more. So the very same science magazine that today says your dog's breed doesn't determine its personality also said dog breeds really do have distinct personalities and they're rooted in DNA. You guys, I cannot make this up. Same, same magazine. Go figure. Press release science. That might be a thing. So this little scientific study, the one from, from April, made its way around various media outlets, garnered lots of attention despite its design flaws, which included owner surveys, and claims derived from false premises Wiser folks than I have taken the time to explicate elsewhere, so if you haven't given in to your own confirmation bias, you can find the challenges with a simple Google search. But what we can do today on the program here is test the argument using Peter Elbow's believing and doubting game. Peter Elbow says, what are the implications for action if all of this is true? If the research proves that genetic breeding practices have no effect on behavior, then there will be no need to send off for those DNA profiles on your mixed breed dogs. And we will all refrain from overgeneralizing about the dog's behavior because it came back at 9% Danish diving terrier or whatever, since it's all meaningless. 
No more obsessing about the dog's breed or genetic origins. And the humane societies, along with rescue groups, can simply describe their inventory in general terms. Medium-sized brown dog with white rough prick ears and a long fluffy tail. And the whole landscape of identification, selection, rearing, training, and ownership will change forever for the better, right? Hmm. What are the implications for action if none of this is true? Then it remains that what kind of dog you get is far less significant in terms of your future success, fighting birds in the field, getting livestock penned, or living in harmony with human beings than who you get your dog from. And that's because the most important question for you can ask a breeder is, what are you selecting for? And finally, here's where I'll take us out. A caller last week had a very complex, multifaceted dog and human problem, and she got angry when I couldn't provide a simple and inexpensive and immediate solution, so she hung up on me. Here's the thing. An expert career is not necessarily highly specialized or professionalized or one that requires extensive formal training. It could be law. It could be hairdressing. It could be dog training. What makes it an expert career is that it is pursued in the manner of addressing and readdressing with cumulative skill and wisdom what constitutes the problems of the job rather than reducing the, mention, the dimensions of the job to what the person is already accustomed to doing. Let me say that again. Experts and non-experts, even when they are nominally practicing the same profession, are actually pursuing different careers. The career of the expert is one of progressively advancing on the problems constituting a field of work, whereas the career of the non-expert is one of gradually constricting the field of work so that they most clo clo more closely conform to the routine that the non-expert is prepared to execute. Educator Jean Levay has said that most people don't have problems, they have predicaments. If you have a predicament and you have to look for help from someone, maybe it's a hardware store proprietor, courthouse clerk, an airline ticket agent, or a dog trainer, you dearly hope, dearly hope, that you will encounter an expert because an expert will turn your predicament into a series of problems, smaller problems, and then help you address them. The non-expert will provide you with a standard course to follow, more likely than not adding further complications to your predicament. And in an industry like dog training or rescue, the pet industry, where anyone can hang out a shingle, you have to be thoughtful. Very thoughtful. Very. So, let's see if we can bring this all together. Conventional wisdom says that puppies or rescue dogs come to us as blank slates, full of promise and limitless potential, ready to be molded into your ideal companion as long as you do your part, provide lots of love, the right amount of discipline, and appropriate training along the way. If you are a caring, responsible pet owner, there's no reason your puppy or your rescue dog should not 
become a model canine citizen. Bad dogs are the fault of bad owners, right? After all, it's all in how you raise them. Uh, as always, it's not quite that simple. There are a few myths in the field of dog training that get under my skin quite as much as that one. Maybe because I have seen so many kind, committed owners with deeply troubled dogs and seen those owners break down in tears during the consultation. Maybe it's the countless number of fundamentally mismatched dog and owner pairings that every veterinarian and trainer that, that they see on a regular basis. The gentle elderly couple living with the adolescent field-bred lab. The busy young professionals with three children under the age of five with a spooky English mastiff who doesn't like kids. Or even the lovely middle-aged woman who wants to do therapy work in a local nursing home with her aloof and introverted chow. What all these situations have in common is an unshakable faith in the notion that any dog can be molded into the perfect pet for the owner's particular lifestyle as long as they are raised right. Yet we all know intuitively that behavioral characteristics can be inherited. Because after all, this basic notion is the reason for thousands of years of selective breeding in the dog world. And it's why we've been able to develop specific lines of dogs who are consistently driven to retrieve things, herd sheep, guard our homes, track rabbits, many times without any formal training at all. So is behavior moldable? Of course it is. To a point. You can only modify what you already have, not create the dog of your choosing from scratch. So if you have specific goals for a dog or need a dog with a certain personality type, it pays to make sure you're getting a temperament you can live with. What do we do with this knowledge? If you have specific personality traits that you need in a dog, don't choose a puppy based on looks or a cheap price and assume you can make it work. This rarely goes well. In my experience, in my experience, instead, I would strongly encourage you to look into getting a puppy from an excellent breeder who has a good track record of producing dogs with the traits you want. That is your very best chance of ending up with a dog that will be a good fit for you and your family. Genetics matter. They just do. It helps to understand that you can only play the hand you're dealt. All dogs come with their own personalities and behavior tendencies, for better or worse. We can do a lot to help these dogs live a safer, happier life with training and careful management. We can build their confidence, teach them better coping skills to handle stress, and strengthen the bond with their owners. But we can't change who they are. And usually that's okay. If you think you have a dog like this, maybe you know you have a dog like this, to paraphrase that famous serenity prayer, I would encourage you to work on the things you can change and accept the things you can't. The trick, if there is one, is learning to know the difference, right? So, 
back-to-back programs on rescue as a source of pet and what to do with the pet after you've sourced it from the rescue. Hopefully, we have something to think about, uh, strategies for making good choices, supporting organizations whose values and beliefs align with ours, and recognizing the importance of explaining through training when that dog comes home. And uh, to borrow a phrase from Julia McDonough, right? Explain through training. Teach that dog how to live with you. Um, and be honest about the dog you have and what the possibilities for that dog might be. All right, y'all. Thanks for coming along with me on this little program, this little journey. Here we are at the end of our half hour or so together. Thank you, as always, for being here. Um, Thanks for supporting the program, for being interested in a public affairs program about dogs. Um, Most of all, thanks for supporting KZUM in all the ways that we know you do with your listening ear, with your donor dollars, uh, with that bumper sticker on your car or that other piece of cool merch that lets your neighbors know that you are a KZUM listener. So keep listening, stick around, don't go anywhere. The fun is just beginning and uh, this is the place to be right here. KZUM. KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. And I will see you back here next Wednesday for a little more dog talk and a little more fun on K9360. I should have uh, some updates from the veterinary medical community um, to share with you by next week, assuming that all my good and useful resource stuff comes in the mail. All right, guys, enough out of me. 